Hi everyone, thanks so much for downloading Dark Histories. The podcast has been growing really well recently and that's thanks to all you good people who share it around with your friends and families. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can help to support the show throughout the growth and keep it sustainable. We have a Patreon, an Amazon booklist, a coffee and an Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way to do so that suits you. All of the links for those various things can be found on the website over at darkhistories.com. And of course, just continuing to share it around with all your friends and families is a huge help. So thanks so much for all your help with that. Okay, let's get on with the show. Campbell, California, lying in the heart of Santa Clara County, a periphery city of Silicon Valley and the birthplace of eBay. In 1896, 100 years before websites facilitating the auction of used underwear and haunting paintings had been dreamt up, Campbell was the scene for a gruesome family killing that saw posses of bounty hunters and bloodhounds looking to cash in on the reward placed on the head of the murderer. They embarked on a manhunt across mountains and valleys that would span years and eventually decades. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 16 of Dark Histories. I'm Ben, as always. It's a pleasure to be back and really looking forward to this episode, actually. We're pretty much jumping forward in time by several hundred years from last episode, but it's a period of time, sort of like the American frontier, that I really like, like a period in an area of history that I really enjoy. The only problem I have with it is trying to view it seriously when all I can really imagine is everyone like Rooster Cogburn and all the criminals like Tom Chaney. So yeah, it's a bit of a struggle, <laughs> but, I, but I, I, yeah, I absolutely love it. So yeah, we're going to be dabbling in the Western frontier in this week's episode. Before we get there, I just want to say thank you as always to all of the patrons and welcome and thank you to all the new patrons. We've got Ashley, Shannon, Tracy, Jiren, I hope that's how you pronounce it, Jamie, Bullfreak Knot, Rob, Jonathan and James. So thanks so much, guys. Welcome to the fold. It's seriously appreciated. And uh, yeah, also thank you to Holly, who... Uh, purchased a book from the Dark Histories wishlist, which I used pretty extensively as a source for this episode. So, um, yeah, thanks very much, Holly. That's uh, that's obviously been a massive help. So, yeah, thanks very much, everyone. Thanks very much for listening, supporting, and all the rest of it. I don't really have any other big announcements this week, I don't think. So, let's crack on. This is Mystery in the West, The McGlintzy Murders. By 1896, the era of the wild American frontier was slowly fading into the myth of the Old West. California's many settlements and townships may still have looked rugged, with their large wooden frame buildings lining a main street, saloon nestled up against the town hall, and shops with large painted letters across their exterior advertising grain and feed. But the equal distribution of realtors, trade unions and red brick buildings showed signs of the rapid gentrification, prosperity and security. Campbell, a small township lying in the Santa Clara Valley, was one such community. Founder William Campbell had arrived in California in 1846, 
following the costly migration 2,000 miles across country and had settled with his third wife and son, Benjamin, opening a sawmill in Saratoga. The trip had been costly for the family. Financially, a migration across the Great Plains in the mid-1800s is estimated to have cost between $35,000 and $75,000 by today's standards. But more profoundly, the trip was taxing on the health of many who had made the journey, and William's second wife died shortly after they arrived at Typhoid. The journey made by the Williams wagon train was particularly difficult and included the Donna Reed Party, a group of migrants who had infamously set out across the Great Plains in 1846 and become snowbound in Sierra Nevada, eventually leading to many members partaking in a touch of cannibalism to survive. In 1851, Benjamin married his fiancée, Mary, and bought a 160-acre ranch where they cultivated hay and grain. At the time, the agricultural output in the region was booming and Benjamin sold a one-acre slice of the ranch to the South Pacific Coast Railroad in order for a telegraph station and through track to be built, connecting the area via the local station. Soon after, with the gleaming new rail connections, with the output expanding at such a rate, the area quickly became known as Orchard City, responsible for shipping vast quantities of fruit back east across the country. In 1892, the first Fruit Growers' Union formed, and by 1895, the influx of people drawn to the area by the ranch work had necessitated the expansion of Campbell. With the opening of a handful of general stores and a bank, it cemented its place as the centre for the local ranch hands and growers. In one week, mid-May of 1896, £27,000 of cherries, £184,000 of dried prunes, £167,000 of wine, £24,000 of grape juice and £49,000 of hops were loaded onto the busy train and shipped out of Campbell, headed east. On the 26th of May, 1896, as the day was drawn to a close, Colonel McGlincy, his stepson James Wells and one of their ranch hands, George Shable, were on the way home to the large 54-acre McGlincy Ranch and Orchard on the edge of Campbell. Colonel McGlincy, a prominent member of Campbell Society, had spent the evening at a local town meeting for the American Protective Association. They were a secretive but prominent anti-Catholic society ran by Protestants, which claimed that the Catholic Church was an establishment irreconcilable with American citizenship and held equally strong views on immigration. This was despite the fact that the majority of the group's members themselves were first-generation immigrants to America. Despite huge growth in the 1890s, the society was, by 1896, on the brink of extinction and the meetings such as the three men had attended that night were sharply declining in attendance. By the time they reached the farmhouse, the sun had dipped below the horizon. No lights were shining from the large bay windows and as they approached the porch, the farm seemed peaceful and the night air lay still in the warmth of early spring. The quiet picture was soon broken, however, as the colonel stepped up to the porch, unlocked the front door, and the sound of a large crack rung through the air as an axe crashed into his skull. Colonel Richard McGlincy was born in Jefferson County, West Virginia in 1841. At age 11, he had worked as an errand boy for the local newspaper until signing up to fight under the Confederate General Stonewall Jackson one of the South's most successful generals during the Civil War. 
During his time serving, he climbed to the rank of colonel. After his discharge in 1865, he returned to the newspaper, this time acting as a foreman, until 1868 when, at age 27, he married Asenath Rodina McGlincy and the couple moved to Illinois, where he became the editor of the Elgin Gazette. The colonel was a keen political and social tinkerer, and through his position as editor gained popularity locally, eventually leading him to being elected as the secretary for the Elgin Board of Trade and serving as the Democratic delegate for the Democratic Congressional Convention. Whilst his social station elevated higher and higher throughout Elgin, his home life suffered, and by 1887, Azanath filed for divorce, citing alleged cruelty and infidelity claims. That same year, more than likely fleeing a failing reputation, the colonel moved to San Jose, where he followed much the same trajectory as he had previously in Elgin, becoming the elected officer of Campbell Horticulturalists and a prominent member of the Grape Growers Association of Santa Clara County. In 1894, he once again represented the Democratic Party at the State Democratic Convention in San Francisco. He remarried a local widow named Ada Mary Wells, and the couple settled on a ranch with Ada's three children from her previous marriage, Mary Elizabeth, Hattie and James. By 1896, Mary Elizabeth had left the family farm, but their son James and their daughter Hattie had recently moved back home, where Hattie lived with her husband James Dunham and their three-week-old infant son Percy. The McGlincy family, with their large, richly planted orchard and the colonel's local political dabbling, were well known and well respected throughout the area. They lived in a large, white-boarded, three-storey home, fronted by a large porch. The house was situated opposite a sizeable barn that eclipsed the house and conveyed to all the prosperity of both the McGlincy Ranch and the Santa Clara agricultural area as a whole. As the colonel slumped to the floor and Dunham stepped over the body out onto the porch, James Wells and George Shabel, startled, separated in the yard, desperately seeking cover. Unbeknownst to the men, the quiet farmhouse had suffered a savage series of attacks in the hours that they had spent at the town meeting, remonstrating about Catholics and immigrants. After the men had left the house for the evening, James Dunham, the colonel's son-in-law, married to Hattie McGlincy, had returned home to the farmhouse with a plan to eliminate the family. He started his assault at around 9pm as the members turned in for bed. He entered the upstairs bedroom that housed himself, his wife Hattie and their three-week-old infant. He first strangled Hattie, forced clothing into her mouth to stifle her screams and then broke her neck. The family's domestic servant, Minnie Schessler, who had recently been employed to help out with the child-rearing duties, was changing into her bedclothes in the adjoining bedroom. When she heard the commotion, she entered the room to see what the problem might have been, and as she crossed the room, Dunham struck her across the back of the head with an axe, felling her in one strike. Perhaps in an effort to ensure she was dead, he then crouched over her body and crushed her skull with the blunt side of the weapon. Clearly, in something of a confused frenzy, he stuffed her mouth too with clothing and tossed her body next to that of his wife and strode to the downstairs rooms of the house. Here, he quickly found Mrs. McGlincy in her room, where he mimicked his earlier savage battery of Minnie, striking her head over a dozen times with the axe. For the time being, with his work done, 
he settled in the house to await the return of the three absent men, though in the downtime, he carefully scaled the rooms for photographs of himself or letters that he written, packing them all away into his luggage, including a large portrait which had hung in the parlour. Throughout the commotion, another one of the McGlincy family's ranch hands, Robert Briscoe, all the while lay sleeping in a small shack built some 100 yards behind the house completely unaware as to what nightmare had taken part in the large family home of his employer. As Dunham awaited the arrival of the colonel and his son, he armed himself with a 38 caliber pistol and a 45 caliber revolver. He sat in the still darkness as his child slept on upstairs in the cot next to the body of his dead mother. James Dunham was born in 1865 to Isaac and Kate Dunham in Dozura, California, San Diego, 10 miles north of the Mexican border. Isaac Dunham was a well-off rancher who had prospered and settled with his wife, having three children of which James was the eldest, along with his younger brother and sister, Charles and Addie. Growing up as somewhat of a loner, he worked on various ranches throughout the south of California, though periodically it was said he would return home in order to get money from his parents, which, if reports are to be believed, he did via various threats and extortions. At one point, he strangled his mother's chickens in the yard, wringing their necks one by one until she paid up. Later, whilst working on a ranch, he had attempted to strangle his employer, Fred Ackerman, and though he walked away from the scuffle relatively lightly, only being sacked from his position, rather than arrested for attempted murder, he told the ranch hands he left behind he wished that he'd been able to kill his employer before he had shouted for help and escaped the situation. When he met and began dating Hattie Wells McGlincy, he was seen by her friends as somewhat of a step down for the daughter of the well-known colonel and graduate of what was to become San Jose State University. Not overly attractive or well-dressed and supporting himself only through odd jobs, many of Hattie's friends openly doubted her motivations suggesting that she only married him to spite his younger brother Charles, who she had previously been engaged to until Charles had went with another girl, promptly ending the relationship in a flurry of heartache and anger. After the pair's marriage, however, Dunham did make efforts to improve his standing in life and to create something of a stable life for him and his wife, although many of his attempts quickly failed, including forays into candy making, a lemonade stand, and an agricultural nursery. The pair moved about throughout California, including Chico, San Francisco and Sacramento, but nothing ever seemed to take off for Dunham as far as business was concerned. Eventually, with the birth of their son Percy imminent, the pair returned back to Santa Clara Valley in the McGlincy Ranch, where Dunham worked for his father-in-law, during which time he returned to school to study pre-law at Santa Clara College. His studies were largely successful and he was known as a diligent student, though he often kept to himself, as mentioned later by the school's headmaster. He had a cheery way of greeting people, but there was something about him which prevented many from cultivating an acquaintance. He was, in a degree, unapproachable. In 1895, his parents passed away, though it appears he didn't return home, choosing instead to stay with his wife. Their relationship, while seemingly okay on the outside, showed signs of strain in the details. In the months leading up to the attack, he had fallen from a ladder whilst working on the McGlincy Ranch and, 
perhaps using his newfound legal schooling, took it upon himself to threaten his father-in-law with punitive damages of $10,000. He had routinely played cards with the colonel on a nightly basis, but in the winter months leading to the spring of 1896, the pair had, according to some reports, stopped talking entirely. Mrs. McGlincy, meanwhile, was keeping a running commentary in her diary of his failures as a husband to her daughter Hattie, perhaps with a view of using this as evidence in divorce filing. Mrs. H. Parker, the midwife who had nursed Hattie throughout the pregnancy with their son Percy, spoke of how he treated Hattie with a degree of cruelty, but seemed to dearly love their child, always treating it with kindness. Now, on the night of the 27th of May, as he stepped over the body of his father-in-law, he looked to finish the job that he had started, drawing out his pistol and firing it into the night towards the shadowy figures of his brother-in-law James McGlincy and ranch hand George Shabel, chasing them out into the yard. George Shabel headed towards the barn, whilst James doubled back, entering the house. Dunham followed suit, firing his pistol, striking him five times, eventually dropping him dead as he fought back desperately with any item of furniture he could toss at the advancing Dunham. Dunham then turned his attention to the colonel who, surprisingly, had not died outright from the initial blow of the axe into his head. He pulled himself through the rooms of the house and attempted to escape through the rear window and run around to the front of the house. As he made his way towards the shack to the rear of the house where the ranch hand Robert Briscoe had been sleeping, George Shabel saw, from the cover of the barn, Dunham casually exit the house through the front door and follow the colonel to the shack, firing his pistol as he walked. When he reached the shack, he pounded on the door, yelling at the colonel to come out, and when he got no reply, he fired through the door, which immediately fell limp as the bullets struck the colonel, who had been leant tightly against it, bracing it from Dunham's entry. As Dunham kicked the door in, Briscoe sprang through the rear window of the shack, running towards the fence that bordered the orchard. Turning, Dunham fired twice in quick succession, and the shadow of Briscoe fell silently as the still quiet returned, heavy over the scene of the massacre. Dunham walked back to the centre of the yard and called for George, telling him that he was next to die. The only reply that came was that of the warm breeze whistling through the orchard. After a moment of consideration, Dunham entered the barn where George hid, but giving it only a cursory look around, to the terrified ranch hand's relief, he untied a horse, and without bothering to saddle it up, mounted it and galloped out of the ranch. As the sound of the thundering hooves thumped into the distance, the quiet night fell once more over the ranch. As midnight approached, the moon shone on, lighting up the bodies lying on the ground in the yard. It wasn't until 1am that Sheriff Linden stepped into the yard of the McGlincy Ranch. He had been alerted to the crime scene by both George Shabel, who had crept out of the barn after Dunham had ridden out of sight, and the McGlincy's neighbour, Mr Ross, who had also been alerted by the earlier gunshots and arrived on the McGlincy Ranch just in time to see Dunham riding off on the unsaddled horse. Both men wasted no time in furnishing the police with a description of both Dunham and the horse, securing a confidence within Sheriff Linden that the perpetrator would be in custody by sunrise. As they scoured the home for evidence, they quickly came to realise that Dunham had made some efforts to cover his tracks. 
The only image of Dunham they were able to find was a single old tintype photograph, though it was enough with the witness descriptions to work on artist renditions for the time being. While searching the rooms for evidence which might suggest a motive, which was, given the lack of robbery, uncomfortably a complete mystery, they found a small note scribbled in pencil on the reverse of a wine company business card lying on Hattie's bureau that appeared to be written by the deceased. Please say goodbye to dear mother, brother and stepfather, Hattie. The note caused some confusion. If Hattie had written it, had she been forewarned that her husband was about to kill her? However, the police later found that the note was a forgery written by Dunham himself. This discovery only further confused matters. Had he intended Hattie's murder to appear as a suicide? But this too did not appear to match the violence that had followed throughout the rest of the house. Chillingly, the coroner inspected the bodies and confirmed that Dunham had murdered the women hours before turning his hand to the returning men, meaning that he had sat calmly awaiting their return, surrounded by the bodies of the murdered family for some time. Throughout the house lay fragments of broken wooden chairs and a smashed guitar that suggested that James, at least, had been able to put up a solid fight for his life before Dunham finished him with the pistol. This further bolstered the confidence of Sheriff Linden, who now appeared to be searching for a man who was potentially carrying some injuries of his own. The sheriff issued a description of Dunham, accompanied by the tintype found in the house, describing him as an expert bicyclist and maybe on a wheel, about 32 years of age, nearly 6 feet high, weight 165 or 170 pounds, dark hair and moustache, blue eyes, medium complexion. When last seen, he wore a black suit, cutaway coat, black soft hat, number 9 shoes with sharp pointed toes. He walks very erect, chin recedes when he laughs. An inquest was held on the afternoon of the 27th, less than 24 hours after the killings in the McGlincy home. The main witnesses, George Shable and Mr Ross, both gave their account of the evening's events, as well as a man named Charles Sterrett, who told the inquest of how he had encountered Dunham further up the road from the McGlincy home. Dunham had stopped his horse in the road to ask the man who he was and what trouble had happened at the McGlincy home before flashing a gun in his face and quickly riding off. Whilst the witness testimonies helped police to patch up the story of what exactly had occurred on the previous night, it offered little in the way of explaining a motive, which was thought to simply be greed. The main line of thought seemed to point towards Dunham's son, who, being the only member of the family left alive, was in line to inherit the McGlincy Ranch. This would, of course, revert to Dunham, given his young age. In 1896, the ranch was estimated to be worth around $75,000, $2.5 million by today's standards. The next day, on the 28th of May, the story of the McGlincy Ranch hit the papers in a big way. The San Francisco Chronicle dedicated the first three pages to the story, adorned by an equally exhaustive headline. The sextuple murder case near San Jose. The killing of the family and servants of R.P. McGlincy in their beautiful country home. Details of the dreadful crime committed by James Dunham while in a frenzy of violent rage. No mercy shown by the cruel assassin to the victims of his murderous mania. It included full transcripts, the witness testimonies from the inquest, and included all the grisly details of the murders in predictably traumatic fashion. 
The homestead presents a scene of horror as ghastly as can be woven on relentless murder and defenceless innocence. The broken dishes and furniture, bullet holes, blood, the bodies of the dead, one beholds in every room is as if the demons had infested the habitation with unabating fury so long as life was in sight. The governor of California publicly issued a reward for the capture, dead or alive, of $1,000, which quickly rose to $11,000 when it was topped up by local businesses and societies. The description on the reward poster followed word for word from the sheriff's earlier release, but added that he may have shaved, changed his clothing and shoes, and that one of his eyelids drooped slightly. The wanted poster also included two photos of Dunham, one taken in 1889, and one more recent taken in 1895. That morning, when searching by the ranch, police found Dunham's bicycle stashed in a brush by the roadside, which led police to believe that he had left it there as a getaway vehicle in the case he had failed to escape on a horse. This all further bolstered the theory the police were well on the way of maturing, that Dunham had carefully planned the killings for some time before he carried them out. Police had discovered that on the morning of the murders, He had left his books at school when he left, though he would usually have brought them home with him. They had also been interviewing some of the locals, and several had given either them or the local press interesting stories. A Mr W. H. Johnson, a legal student, had told press that a few weeks before the murders, he had met Dunham whilst in his tutor's office. He asked me this question. Providing a man marries into a wealthy family and has issue and afterwards the entire family should die, would that child inherit the entire estate? I promptly replied, for I had given this subject considerable study. It would. He then said, I'm glad of that, and then covered what he said by the further remark, I'm glad of that, as I intend to study law myself and am anxious to learn legal points. In talking to me, he seemed to speak very rationally, and his actions would indicate that he was a very deliberate man. I knew he intended to study law, and I was not in the least surprised that he asked this question, but little did I think that I was furnishing information upon which Dunham was founding his plot to strike down a whole family. The same morning, Dunham's brother, Charles, spoke out against his brother's state of mind and character, damning him as a villain and cold-blooded murderer. Don't talk to me about insanity. He was as sane as you or I, but a natural-born villain and murderer. He did not act like an insane man. There was a method in his madness from start to finish. He wanted the property. By killing off the whole family, he could secure it. He planned cleverly, and he executed well up to a certain point, when the merest chance, you might say, undid him. He cared not a snap of your fingers of human life. Affection for wife or babe was to him a thing unknown. He has gained the property, but will forfeit his life for it if justice is meted out to him. Paradoxically, he then went on to talk to the press about his brother's family situation, which countered much of what was believed by locals and the police. There is not the slightest truth in any report that there was any trouble in the family. My brother and his wife were married a little over a year ago. He loved his wife dearly, and she reciprocated his love deeply. The whole family loved him and idolised him, and when I was at the house a week ago to visit them, I found them enjoying perfect happiness. An arrest warrant on charge of murder was immediately issued after the inquest, and Sheriff Linden had been busy arranging for a posse of men to ride south. 
the direction which they assumed Dunham would be heading en route to Mexico in an area that he was familiar with. Lyndon estimated Dunham to have anywhere from five dollars to $20,000 on his person, a considerable sum and one which naturally would not only aid his escape, but go a long way to ensure his concealment if he was to slip through the lawman's net. That evening, Sheriff Below from the southern county of San Luis Obispo arrived via train with his trusty bloodhound companions. The two dogs, Trim and Flora, shared a degree of infamy for tracking murderers in their home county, and now Below was keen to spread their talents wider in the search for Dunham, which was well and truly on. The dogs visited the ranch as soon as they arrived. However, Sheriff Below had not quite taken into account the sheer amount of commotion that had passed through the ranch in the previous 24 hours. With such a busy crime scene, the dogs failed in picking up a trail for Dunham before they even left the boundaries of the ranch. At 6.30pm that evening, things began to look brighter for Sheriff Linden when a call came in confirming a sighting of Dunham at the Smith's Creek Hotel in the foothills of Mount Hamilton lying just to the east of the Santa Clara Valley. Everett Snell and Oscar Parker, two ranch hands, were on their way home when they crossed paths with a man riding an unsaddled horse with gunny sacks tied over his feet and a badly scratched face. Snell recognised the man as Dunham as he had known him before the murders since he had, at one time, worked at the Smith Creek Hotel. But Snell played it cool and spoke casually to the man when he asked the pair if there was a trail ahead that would lead him to the San Joaquin Valley. Snell, with some cheek, calmly confirmed that there was, but instead directed Dunham back to the main road, thinking that he would be much more likely to be caught if he was out in the open. Unfortunately, possibly realising the danger, Dunham said that he'd take the trail over the mountain instead. Snell countered by telling him that there had recently been trouble over the mountain with cattle thieves and it would be much better off going along the trail that he'd suggested, unless he wanted to potentially be mistaken for a cattle thief and get caught up with the law. Parker, then alarmingly with the reward in mind, invited Dunham back to his cabin to rest. Dunham had told the two men of how he had had little to eat, and had previously broken into a cabin and stolen a piece of bacon, which, as it turned out, happened to be Parker's cabin but Dunham declined the offer, saying he wanted to get through the trail that night. He thanked the men and rode off towards the main road, at which point Snell and Parker quickly returned home and contacted the sheriff, telling him of their deception of Dunham and the direction that he was headed. It was gold for Sheriff Linden, who instantly put together a posse consisting of himself, Sheriff Below, his two hounds, the three deputy sheriffs, six constables, and over 20 bounty hunters who were keen to catch Dunham and claim the $11,000 reward for themselves. The wagon train was closely tailed by over a dozen members of the press, and as the whole procession left Campbell, crowds came out into the streets to cheer the men on. By 10pm, the crew had reached Smith's Creek Hotel and spread out across the foot of the mountain range. Sheriff Linden instructed them to fire two shots into the air in quick succession, then to pause and fire two more as a signal that they had found Dunham. They all presumed that he would not come quietly and so backup would almost certainly be required to drag him in. Quickly, the weather fell against the men. By 1am, a dense fog had rolled from the mountain and forced them to return to the hotel which was acting as a temporary headquarters 
where they waited for it to clear. Determined not to let Dunham get ahead of them, Lyndon went back out onto the mountain at 3am when the fog cleared. But at dawn, every man returned to the hotel, one by one, empty-handed. Only partially disheartened, Sheriff Lyndon was confident that, although Dunham had so far eluded their capture, he could not escape the mountain trail, as he had posted sentries on every possible exit route, and in a telephone conversation with the press from the hotel, he informed them that he had every confidence that Dunham would be in custody by 9am. The manhunt featured in every newspaper across the country that morning. The trails available for horses will be so guarded that he will be caught if he keeps to them. If he abandons the horse and tries his luck afoot, his progress will be quickly overtaken. Several persons reported as travelling the trail and supposed to be the murderer were run down tonight only to discover that they were not the fugitive. Every member of the party is eager for daylight to resume the pursuit which has become exceedingly exciting as the nearness of their game is made evident. 9am came and went, however, and there had been no sign of Dunham leaving the mountain, nor on the trails. Contrary to his brother Charles's earlier remarks discussing Dunham and Hattie's marriage, the story was surrounded by small snippets of information on Dunham's character, declaring him as a brutal husband with a history of domestic violence and controlling behaviours. That Thursday saw the funeral of Minnie Shessler, the McGlincy handmaid at the First Christian Church in Campbell, and the next day, the funerals for the rest of the McGlincy family were held at the Congregational Church. The funeral procession left the ranch at 2pm and was followed by more than 400 carriages that snaked through San Jose. The hunt for Dunham, meanwhile, had gone temporarily cold. It was just as the sheriff and his men were returning to Campbell that evening at 9pm that they got a call with a witness sighting of Dunham's horse. The report said that a man who was familiar with the McGlincy Ranch had seen one of their horses named Honey out on a trail in Indian Gulch, five miles from the Smith's Creek Hotel. With almost no time to resupply, the sheriff turned back around and after calling for the help of a local man familiar with the McGlincy horses, left once again for the mountains. They quickly found the horse, and after the man called after Honey, who responded to her name, the sheriff was satisfied it was Dunham's horse. Dunham himself, however, was nowhere to be found. The party split up, searching the area, and found a small campsite 60 yards away from where the horse had been tied that showed signs of being used the night before, along with torn scraps of the San Jose Mercury newspaper which contained the story of the manhunt and the sheriff's plan to enlist Sheriff Below's bloodhounds. Convinced that Dunham had abandoned his horse due to the difficult terrain on the main trail and ventured into the forest trail, the hounds were called for and the hunt was, once again, on for the elusive Dunham. As the men searched after Dunham, a single gunshot rang out across the mountain. Pausing to wait for the further shots that would confirm it as a signal, the sheriff held his breath but no further shots came. Initially, this led police to believe that Dunham had perhaps turned his pistol on himself and committed suicide, and so, in the wake of the gunshot, the search party were alerted to be on the lookout for a body rather than a living fugitive. But this line of thought was damaged for some when the next morning tracks leading off the trail in San Antonio Valley were found. This left the sheriff in a difficult position. Either Dunham had committed suicide on the mountain and his men needed to scour the mountainside looking for his body, 
Or Dunham had concocted a clever ruse and slipped through the tightening net, and pursuit of the man, very much alive, was in order, and quickly. After so much bluster and confidence in their ability to capture Dunham, the sheriff was now facing an awkward chat with the press, who were frothing at the mouth awaiting details of the search, along with the fervent public who were waiting for news in crowds outside the San Jose courthouse and who were circulating their own plans of a lynching. Sheriff Linden chose to play it vague, which, fortunately for him, was deemed by many to be a sign that he had in fact already caught Dunham and was playing it down in order to avoid a mob gathering at the station. In reality, Sheriff Linden was busy following the trail of a pointed toe shoe, thought to be that of Dunham's from a cabin on the mountainside that had been recently broken into. Sheriff Linden split his posse into two, with one group searching the area where the single gunshot had previously been fired in the hopes of finding Dunham's body, whilst the other group pursued the trail southeast across several difficult-to-pass gulches. The situation back in the Smith's Creek Hotel, however, was something of a party atmosphere. The hotel had been packed to the rafters with armed bounty hunters who were either hot on the trail of Dunham or making out that they were to some effect as they drank and sang throughout the nights. Many believed that Dunham had shot himself and were in less of a hurry as the sheriff to get back out onto the difficult terrain. Many others, however, took note that as they had seen no buzzards hovering across the mountainside, he was almost certainly still alive. As the weekend passed and no further news of Dunham's capture leaked out of the press, the public became more and more restless. By Monday, a circular was making the rounds of San Jose, acting as something of a call to arms. Dear sir, this invitation and notice is given because further confidence reposed in you that its contents will not be divulged. The scene of the most heartless crime of history has been laid in our county, near our own homes. James C. Dunham has foully murdered three women and three men. The murderer is at liberty, with chances strongly in favour of his escape. The laws of our state offer no substantial aid in bringing about his capture. Believing it to be the duty of every citizen to aid in supporting the laws of the land, and when the law is inadequate, to heroically come to its support, you are appealed to by a committee to meet in company with many of our best citizens at the courthouse in the courtroom of Department 1 this Monday evening, June the 1st, at the hour of 8 o'clock sharp, for the purpose of devising ways and means for assisting in the work of pursuing and capturing murderer James C. Dunham. Be assured that this meeting is not called for the purpose of forming a vigilance committee, but solely for the purpose of lawfully assisting the officers and the law in bringing to justice the most vicious criminal in the history of this country. You have the privilege of bringing with you any responsible citizen who will assist, providing that you, as a man of honour, will vouch for his responsibility. Present this notice at the inner door of the courtroom of Department 1. This circular was signed off by the apparently newly formed Committee of Safety, and as sketchy as it may have sounded, over 50 men presented themselves at the meeting where they discussed cooperatively hiring private detectives. Others suggested the reward be raised to $50,000, claiming that the men of Campbell do not do things by halves. All of this, of course, only led to further subtle criticism of Sheriff Linden in the press for failing to yet capture Dunham. The people of the city feel a deep chagrin and impatience at the murderer of a whole family 
should have ridden away from his awful work out of the country to safety, a man with a bareback horse and no provisions. At night, however, further sightings reignited the confidence of the now lagging sheriff. It also silenced much of the debate, though not entirely, that suggested Dunham may have killed himself in the gulch. Ten miles south of Indian Gulch, in the San Felipe Valley, one of the locals, a man named Wood Wadlams, told the local sheriff that he had trailed bicycle tracks, interspersed with tracks of the infamous pointed shoes, down to the Coe Ranch. Mr Coe, who had not yet heard of the murders, had reportedly told him that he'd seen Dunham the night previously when he had turned up at his door looking for food. Mr Coe, he said, had sold him food, a rifle and 30 rounds of ammunition for $50. And the following day, on the McGillrath Ranch, Dunham had allegedly approached a young ranch hand claiming to be sick and had paid him $5 to go into town and buy him some whiskey. As the news spread and Wadlam's discovered that Dunham was a wanted man, he quickly called in the sheriff. However, the next day, after rushing down to the ranch, Lyndon found out that the sightings were looking more and more likely to be a hoax. Mr. Coe himself denied the story, saying that he had not seen Dunham for years, along with every supposed witness on the McGillrath ranch. It later turned out that Wood Wadlams had spun the tale out of thin air in an effort to impress a young lady he was chasing. This report was not the only hoax that had been rung into the sheriff's office, and now, as the public became more and more frantic and the story grew in size, Sheriff Lyndon became inundated with unlikely leads and straight hoaxes pouring into his office on a daily basis. In a reasonably polite response, one officer told the press, These men of the mountains are, many of them, dreamers, some of them suffering from what is commonly known as shepherd's delight, and they allow their imaginations to form theories which to them soon become realities. In this case in the mountains, the efforts of the officers are obstructed by these unreliable yarns. The newspapers wasted no time in branding Wadlam's a wild-eyed lunatic, and once again the tone shifted in the reports concerning the sheriff, which now began to offer a grain of sympathy for the problems that the snowed-under officer had to contend with. Still, no solid leads were forthcoming for a further three days, until Thursday the 4th of June, when in the afternoon... Sheriff Linden heard report from one of his deputies that had previously been dispatched to Fresno County. Deputy Edson reported to the sheriff that a man matching Dunham's description down to the very clothes on his back had been spotted by an unnamed but assuredly reliable man by Hayes Station in the western foothills of Fresno. This witness apparently had never seen Dunham nor knew of him before the murders but was able to furnish the deputy with a complete description of his clothing, shoes and hat that satisfied the deputy that the sighting was genuine. As the officers made their way southeast, they further discovered that Dunham had stopped over for a night at the Mercer Ranch in Little Pinochet Valley, where Mrs Mercer had offered him food and bed for a night. Dunham accepted the food, but chose instead to sleep down by the nearby creek. Upon being shown Dunham's photograph by Lyndon, Mrs Mercer confirmed that it had been the fugitive. The Fresno police were not entirely forthcoming with help for Sheriff Lyndon, stating that as soon as they had specific confirmation that Dunham was in the county, they would offer up help in the manhunt. At the same time, a call came in of a witness sighting from King City in the neighbouring Monterey County. 
The sheriff chose to head to the city in an effort to cut off Dunham before he could leave again. However, this report once again turned out to be a hoax, and by the time the sheriff returned to Fresno, it was seemingly likely that Dunham would have already left the borders of the county for good. Clutching at straws, and with the trail growing increasingly cold, Sheriff Linden returned to Campbell to collect the McGlincy family dog, which he thought might be able to assist the search back in Indian Gulch for Dunham's body, which many still suspected lay in the hills after his suicide. Unsurprisingly, this untrained dog turned out to be no help at all, and once more the sheriff was forced to return to Campbell empty-handed. As the trail of Dunham grew colder, the days, weeks and months rolled by, with no convincing leads coming from anywhere. That wasn't to say that all leads had stopped coming into the sheriff's office entirely, and despite the story slowly fading to the middle pages of the newspapers, daily sightings and hoaxes still made it through to Lyndon, who had the unappealing task of sifting through them. One, a letter adorned with a string of dead mice, simply stated, This is the way I did my family, and this is the way I will treat you if you were there when I come around. Although it probably didn't need testing, it was clear that the handwriting didn't match that of Dunham's and this was written off as just one of the numerous hoaxes that acted to fill the void created by the absence of any real information on the case. Throughout the summer months of 1896, several men were arrested, including Frank Dalton, who had been arrested in North Dakota for stealing a bicycle and who local police believed matched Dunham's description. Once furnished with a photograph, however, They soon dropped the charge and the man was cleared of suspicion. The manhunt for Dunham was now looking increasingly like a failure and slowly the story slipped out of the minds of the Californian population as the story in the press became an occasional curiosity rather than a daily excitement. Months turned to years and in 1899 Sheriff Linden, now thoroughly out of favour, lost the local election and was replaced by Sheriff Robert Langford who won with a majority of 144 votes. With his position, Sheriff Langford had also inherited the Dunham case, and it was not long before the manhunt was back in the news. Within three weeks of his taking office, Dunham was once again stealing headlines with reported sightings, including one from a sheriff in Iowa who was convinced he held Dunham in custody under another name. And so the story of Dunham continued on, inspiring bounty hunters who still coveted the considerable reward for his capture. Amongst those bounty hunters who ventured out into the foothills in pursuit of Dunham were three teenage boys, Charles Fisher and brothers Ed and William Gruel. The trio had decided that school was boring and as such they skipped out. They took it upon themselves to steal their father's watch and bicycle, which they promptly sold and used the proceeds to buy a donkey. Borrowing a cart from a neighbour, they filled the back with three hammers, three axes, two guns, and a generous supply of jam which they stole from a neighbour's pantry. Unfortunately, their bold posse did not make it far, and the boys were caught before they had even gotten out of the city limits and brought home to their fuming parents. This story had followed a recent discovery of a skeleton on the Pachico Pass in the Santa Clara Hills. The skeleton was discovered by two young boys riding their bikes across the pass. They quickly rode to the sheriff's office and told him of how they found the bones with a cloth bandage wrapped around what would have been a man's face. The sheriff accompanied the boys back out to the pass, but in their initial shock and haste to report their find, 
they were unable to retrace their steps and the skeleton was never seen again. By 1901, the Dunham case was now sliding deep into the past. However, occasional stories in the newspapers kept it barely alive in the minds of the locals to Santa Clara County. In May, now five years after the Dunham murders, a man going by the name of Charles Creel was arrested on suspicion of being Dunham and charged with the murders of the McGlincy family. The arrests saw the murders once again strike bold front-page headlines with the San Francisco call running confidently, Murderer Dunham, or his double, is a prisoner in San Jose jail. Sheriff Langford and Deputy Bash returned from Kansas with the captive who is alleged to have confessed that he exterminated the McGlincy family. In every detail, the suspect's appearance tallies with the description of the Campbell fugitive, and officers are confident he is the man. The paper printed a sworn affidavit from the former Marshal of Burlington, Iowa, including the alleged confession, which read, E.F. Grainer, being first duly sworn, deposes and says that C.F. Krill, not being under arrest, in confidence made the following statement, voluntarily and not under duress, to wit, that he, C.F. Krill of Santa Clara County, California, did kill the McGlincy's and that after so killing them, fled to Mexico and being able to speak Spanish, was therefore safe in Mexico. He said if he should ever be arrested for killing the McGlincy's, he would kill himself if he had the opportunity, either by taking dope as he carried poison with him, or by throwing himself under a moving train, or he would grab a revolver from the officer as he knew it would be all up with him if they got him out to California. And further, the deponent said not. Signed, E.F. Grainer. Grainer was, it appears, stalking Krill on suspicion that he was Dunham. Krill had made a drinking partner of Grainer and the pair had met nightly to drink in bars across Wichita. One night, Krill had apparently made the confession, completely unaware that Grainer was essentially working as an undercover bounty hunter, hot on the trail of the unclaimed reward. Throughout this period, Grainer was in communication with the local Iowa sheriff, and once he was sure that he had had the right man, he told the sheriff of his certainty, who contacted Sheriff Langford in Santa Clara, telling him that they had done him and that he should come and collect him. Krill agreed to go to Santa Clara with Langford on the condition that if he was found not to be the hunted man, his expenses and a return ticket would be paid for by the state. As soon as the pair returned to Santa Clara, acquaintances and people familiar with Dunham were called upon to visit this jail cell and to help identify him. In total, over 1,000 people would be paraded back and forth in front of his cell, with opinion firmly split over a positive identification. All the while, Krill worked to cooperate with the police, standing in various poses for the identifications. He was sure that he would be found innocent, telling the press that he'd never even been to California before his arrest. I am not James Dunham, the murderer. I was never here and never left here to avoid arrest. In 1896, at the time of the Dunham murders, I was in Leadville, Colorado. I fixed the date by the Great Leadville Strike, which I think started on June the 14th, 1896. For two years from that time, I was either in Pueblo or Cripple Creek. He challenged that if he were guilty, would he not have been more afraid to come to Santa Clara on account that he may be lynched by the locals and furnish the papers with a backstory to his life, stating that his birthplace was New York 
They had left home when he was 18 years old following the death of his parents, and he had been something of a wanderer ever since. The only solid evidence he could offer of his identification, however, was a letter written by a young child which he claimed was his own, born to his wife who lived in Colorado, addressed to Charles Krill. He admitted also that he had spent time in Mexico since the date of the murders. Sheriff Langford remained confident, stating, I think I have the right man. Anyhow, if he is innocent, he can prove his identity. The similarities do appear to be remarkable. Krill was the same height, weight and shoe size as Dunham, although he was 10 years older as far as he stated. The pair shared the same colour eyes and hair, as well as missing teeth and identical scar caused by a knife wound on the back of the neck. Krill's handwriting was said to bear a close resemblance to that of Dunham's, and although he denied it, Sheriff Langford was quite sure he understood Spanish, Dunham's second language. The testimonies of acquaintances ranged from the extremes right across the spectrum, from old classmates who could not be sure of his identity, to neighbours who were convinced that the man was Dunham, and family friends who swore that he was not. Eventually, Creel was positively identified as not Dunham by a priest named Father Leggio, who had officiated over his marriage in 1887. The priest showed up to the jail cell, and borrowing a large coat and hat from Sheriff Langford to conceal both his religious attire and his own identity, he visited Krill in his cell, questioning him on his life up until his marriage. Once he was satisfied that the man knew details of the ceremony that only Krill could possibly know, he took off his disguise and congratulated him on his innocence. With no choice but to accept that he had the wrong man, Sheriff Langford released Krill on May the 11th, paying his return fare to Iowa as promised. In June of 1902, one curious report came into Sheriff Langford from Boulder Creek in the Santa Cruz Mountains. A local timber prospector, Mr. H. Duval, had been out in the forested area when he had spied a pillar of smoke pouring up from a concealed area. Curious, he called out to the owner but was given no response. Paying it no mind, he returned home, but a week later, Curiosity got the better of him and he once again returned to the same spot to investigate further. As he climbed down the difficult, creviced region, he found a small wood cabin painted green in order to camouflage it into the background. When he entered the cabin, he found it recently abandoned. The small shelter was furnished with a stove, an oven, and there were canned goods along with the carcasses of rabbits and a quail hanging nearby. Deval also found a complete file of newspaper cuttings chronicling the McGlincy murders and the manhunt for Dunham, which continued right up until the 27th of May, the very same day that he had stumbled across the smoking chimney and called out to the owner a week prior. In 1905, Sheriff Langford passed away due to illness and was replaced by Sheriff Frank Roth. Now a decade and three generations of Sheriff Deep, the story of the McGlincy family murders and the escape of Dunham had well and truly faded from public view, but the case was still technically open. Very little was heard, however, until in 1911, when James Johnson and Joseph Schmidt, a pair of hunters, were out hunting on Pine Ridge near the base of the Santa Clara Mountains when they found a jar with a tightly screwed lid. Inside was a note written on ageing paper that read, 
This is to certify that I am Jim Dunham, the murderer of Santa Clara County. You will find my bones across the gulch in a cave. I gave you a good run, Sheriff. Goodbye to my darling baby. You surely are a poor Sheriff. I could have shot you a number of times. You owe your life to me. The note, despite its wild claims, proved to be a close match for Dunham's handwriting, and though for many it closed the case on the McGlincy murders, proving that Dunham had committed suicide in the gulch, many others considered that it may simply have been a red herring placed by Dunham during his escape in an effort to send the law on the wrong path. Whichever it was, the public had largely lost interest in the story by now, and the note only gained small interest than column inches in the local paper. Whether or not it was a suicide note which truly acted as closure or not, the case was, for all intents and purposes, finished in the eyes of the press and the public, leaving it to fall into a permanent stasis. An open case with no conclusion, as cold as the trail of Dunham ever was. The McGlincy Ranch was eventually inherited by Dunny and Hattie's son, Percy, who had been adopted by an aunt, Lucy Brewer, who lived in San Francisco, where his name was changed and he lived until his death in 1969. The McGlincy family home, scene of the crime itself, was demolished 14 years prior in 1955. As for Dunham, he was never found, and the mystery of his escape never fully uncovered. Many believed he committed suicide in the gulch when the sheriff and his posse had heard the single gunshot in the distance, though many more believed he slipped through the fingers of the search party and the bounty hunters who chased him, disappearing across the Mexican border into a life of freedom. Then what of the peculiar story of the wood cabin, which, if you are to believe Dunham was the resident, meant that he may well have simply took up a life lying low in the foothills of the mountains, slowly growing older as he collected cutouts of his murderous spree decades before. Whichever theory we choose to latch onto, we are all left in the same place, wondering how on earth he had managed to slip through the hands of so many who were very well motivated, and where does his body lie now? Is it in a cemetery somewhere south of the border or buried on a hillside in Santa Clara by years of rotting vegetation and the passing seasons of over 120 years? So that was the McGlincy murders and the story of Dunham's escape or not escape, depending on, depending on your theories, I guess. But it's a really interesting period of history, this episode, and it's one that I say I haven't really covered too much on Dark Histories. So I really wanted to kind of do something from that era. And and I, I quite like this story. It reminded me way too much, like I say, of True Grit and Tom Chaney chasing him across, you know, the, the gulches. A bit different for the territories, but, you know, that's kind of in my head, same difference, really, <laughs> which is probably terrible. Um but yeah, that was that story. We'll talk a little bit about um, whether or not we think Dunham did escape or not after these short ads. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. 
Mysterious Japan is produced, written and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, we need to, you know, run a few ads. So by that end, we've become an official affiliate with Audible. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service where you pay a monthly fee and with that fee you get a credit that you can spend on an audiobook of your choice. It's actually quite a good service and I'm a member of it myself, so I'm quite happy to have it as a kind of advert in Dark Histories, despite the fact I don't really like adverts. Because I just think it's a, a good service that's a decent value for money. The basic deal with Audible is that you get a credit once a month that you can spend on an audiobook. And if you cancel, you keep all your books, which is quite nice. They don't take any of your stuff away. Um, you, I, I routinely start and stop my subscription when I, when I don't need to use it, basically. And all my books stay there. They have an app on iOS and Android and I do believe Windows as well so you can always listen to it on any device and they all sync up as well which is pretty handy. If this sounds at all interesting to you and you're interested in trying it out then head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories and you can get a one month trial where you get a free audiobook of your choice. At the end of the trial if you don't like it or you think it's not ready for you you can cancel it and it'll, you can keep your free audiobook. And by using our affiliate link, we get a small kickback in the process, which helps to support the show. So it's win-win for everyone, really. So if you are interested, that link again is audible.com forward slash dark histories. Or if you prefer, go to darkhistories.com, check out support, and you'll find a link there that leads directly to the trial page. Thanks very much. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? Of course, you can hit that 30 second skip button, and that's all cool. But a much cooler way of skipping the ads is to sign up to the Dark Histories Patreon. You get a bunch of different benefits for doing so, including ad-free shows, access to early release episodes, the full back catalogue of bonus episodes, including the live stream archive and all the other bonus content. You get access to all my research notes for each episode, and you get the added bonus that you're actually a part of the show, helping to keep it independent and sustainable from as little as $1 a month. So if you think that might be something you might be interested in doing, hop over to darkhistories.com and you'll find the support page with all the details to get involved. Thanks very much for not skipping this and giving my hard sale a listen. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back. So yeah, Dunham, did he escape? Well, firstly, I mean, what was his motive? I think, I guess it was quite clear that his motive was to get the property. Um, it is sort of obscured by the fact that that the, the murders clearly went all wrong, and I think he probably intended to sort of kill the family much more quietly, and then escape on his bike that they'd found in the brush. So I guess that was kind of his plan, and then he could kind of blag himself an alibi, maybe come back to the farm and 
find all the bodies and find the police and, you know, look what's happened. And he would be sort of in the clear to inherit the house. So I guess that was kind of his plan and that was his motive. But it all just went horribly wrong. But it seemed to go horribly wrong for him right from the very start. I don't really understand the part about his, his forging his wife's suicide note. That, that was quite... That whole suicide note thing is very peculiar in this case. I don't really get it. I don't know quite how he was going to suggest that her murder was a suicide when he snapped her neck. And he didn't really seem to have any other plan other than sort of violently kill her. So... I'm not quite sure how he thought he was going to sort of flag that one as a suicide. So the suicide note, that, that, I don't really understand that. But I do think that was probably his plan. I think he was hoping to sort of do the killings quietly. Because at first it seems really hard to understand. Well, you know, what was his motive? What, why was he doing this? But, but when you assume that it, it just didn't go to plan at all and his original plan was to escape on the bike and, and blag himself an alibi and, and the murders to have been very quiet, or at least he was going to, you know, mop up all of the witnesses. It makes a lot more sense. It's, I guess it's only because it went horribly wrong that he had to escape on the horse and run away. Um, so, yeah, I guess that kind of makes more sense. So, yeah, did he escape or not? Or did he kill himself on the mountain? I, I actually don't think he killed himself. I think all of that's a red herring. I think, I think the fire and the pistol and the letter that they found in the like years later, saying that his bones would be found in the cave. I think that was all like a red herring. I think he was possibly trying to lead people up the wrong path. But that's all just my own sort of theories based on nothing. It's just that I think that he was too self-centred. I think he he was too set on... I think he was too selfish and too greedy. I don't think he would have killed himself. I think he was kind of all in it for himself. So I don't understand why he would then turn around and kill himself. I think he could have got off that mountain and I think yeah, I just, I just think it's all a red herring. I think him firing the bullet, like the single bullet and all the rest of it, I think that was probably a red herring. And so later we had Krill. Um, that was a really interesting part of it. To be completely fair, and, and normally I'd, I'd, I think they're a bit off, but in this case, he looks remarkably like Krill. And what I'll do is I've got a photo of both of them together in that was in the, um, I think it's the San Francisco Cool newspaper but I've got a copy of it so what I'll do is I'll put it up on Instagram and you can check it out which is dark underscore histories if you want to find us on Instagram but yeah I'll put it up there and you can check it out but but for once they were remarkably similar basically Krill just looks a little older which of course he, he would do given the passing of time and I think given that passage of time the confusion over the identification as well because you know he would have faded a little in their minds and then they would have seen this Krill who like I say looked remarkably close you know I, I can see where he fooled people uh, I don't really understand why the guy kind of tried to shop him in the first place I guess he just wanted to shop him for the reward but yeah it, it, he, he did look remarkably similar so I can kind of understand that but I, I do think he definitely was Krill not Dunham or Townsend uh, but yeah, no, he definitely wasn't Dunham, uh, I'm fairly sure. But he just looked remarkably similar and I can kind of understand why. But yeah, I do think Krill was Krill in this case. So then we're kind of left with the idea that Dunham either escaped or that that was Dunham in the cabin. The cabin, I thought, was really intriguing, actually. Um, but I don't, I don't really think it was Dunham in there. 
based purely on the fact that he had so much money on him. Why would he have built a little cabin in the woods and kind of hold up? And not only that, we had canned goods and such, so he must have been shopping somewhere, which means he must have been going into the, some sort of town or something, you know, or shop somewhere to buy those canned goods. But it was, I thought, an interesting little kind of side part to the story. Like the cabin was kind of weird in its own right. And it's kind of strange that they were collecting cutouts on the McGlincy murders right up until the guy basically discovered the cabin and called out to it. But it, but I don't think that would have been done in there. I do think it's a fascinating kind of twist to it. And my theory is just that, okay, he had so much money on him. A, a minimum amount, the sheriff said that he had minimum of £5,000 on him. And some people have estimated it and suggested that he could have had up to 20000 dollars on him so i think he had that much money he could easily have escaped and i think anyone that caught him on that mountain if they weren't if they didn't have quite the integrity of the sheriff he could just bribed himself you know he could have bribed them and bribed himself a, a, a passage to be honest you know, if he had that much money on him, it would have been what, like six, seven hundred thousand dollars today's money that he so you know, he had he had perfect opportunity really to get away. I think he could have got away if anyone caught him that wasn't a real stickler. He he could easily have just said, Look, you know, I'll give him the money, you turn the other way and I'll and I'll just keep going. And and I think perhaps that's how he got all the way to Mexico, to be honest. I think he probably did escape to Mexico. And I definitely think he pretty much just bribed his way there. Um, with that much money, I think anyone could have done it almost. So, yeah, I, I guess it, it is a mystery. I say my theory is not exactly, well, that doesn't wrap it up. Do you know what I mean? It's based on literally nothing. Um, it's just my own speculation. But, yeah, I'd be interested to know what, what you guys think. Perhaps if you guys know the area better than me, obviously, um, being English, you you might sort of say no, you're talking nonsense, Ben. That's not you, you. You wouldn't have been able to, you know, perhaps traverse that area or, or, or whatever. So perhaps I'm I'm definitely underestimating the terrain and the journey, maybe. But that's kind of what I think happened. But yeah, obviously, if you do think I'm talking out my ass, and um, you know, you you've got your own theories, and and especially say if you're familiar to the area and you you know the territory, and maybe you think I'm perhaps way off base here then let me know you can do that either email me contact at darkhistories.com um, or come along to a live stream which will be next week on youtube uh, live streams are free for all you're welcome come along best bet is to follow social media and you'll get all the updates for when and where they'll be uh, but basically yeah everyone's free to come along and come on to the live streams and have a chat basically otherwise yeah if you'd like to contact me or you can really do it through the email or anyway, like DMs through social media, things like that. Uh, all the social media is on our website, which is darkhistories.com. Um, and on there, you can find links to all the social media. Although we're pretty much just dark histories everywhere. But yeah, if you go onto the website, you'll find links to everything, including um, you know email, all the social media, all the ways you can support. Yeah, so that's really kind of the hub. And it also has links to our Discord, which is a kind of cool little community if you want to come and get involved on there as well. So yeah, thanks very much for listening this week. I think that's going to be it. So it's all gone quite quiet. Oh, I suppose, except from the fact that this week, 
uh, we got 750,000 downloads of the podcast on iTunes, which is amazing um, and way more than I probably ever expected. And it really now puts Dark Histories kind of up there. So that's that's amazing. So thanks very much for, you know, just continuing to listen and supporting the show and supporting me really with just being kind of enthusiastic for the content and, and, and everything and, and all the emails and messages that you send. Um, yeah, it's it's been it's been a wild two years, really. But to get seven hundred fifty thousand is say way more than I really ever expected. But it's really cool that um, you know I can share these stories and people actually care to listen to them. So thanks very much. I, I really do appreciate it. It's, uh, it's it's one of one of my greatest pleasures, I guess, is making this podcast. So I'm just glad you guys enjoy listening to it. So yeah, thanks very much. I'll be back next week for the live stream or two weeks for next episode in the meantime take care have a enjoyable august thanks very much for listening sleep tight